Hello, everybody. Welcome to the April edition of the Third Fridays podcast. And I think we have a little treat for everyone today, or, or really the treat may be for my guest. Oh, it's definitely uh, for me. <laughs> I've never been so excited to be asked to speak anywhere. I've addressed conferences, clients, our office, and I've never been so honored. I can't believe this podcast has gone on for years now. Years. More than two years. More than two years. And you've never invited me on today. Yeah, so either this is going to go very well, or uh, this might blow up in smoke. Uh, we'll see what happens, though. Uh, everybody, if you can't recognize my guest voice, is uh, the esteemed named partner of this great firm, Gregory Lois. I'm well, so happy to be here. Welcome I to cannot the show. Even, and all I had to do was arrange other people's schedules, <laughs> because I was not your first choice today to be your guest. You had someone else, and I arranged to get him out of the state. <laughs> you actually haven't been my first choice for two years, and you've managed, oh. managed to wrangle yourself into this little oh, uh, so shindig by, uh, you're right, you switched around mm -hmm. some scheduling. Mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know, maybe there was a mm -hmm. quote-unquote technology snafu, <laughs> which I don't believe uh, for a fact mm -hmm. uh, had mm -hmm. ever actually occurred, but here right. we are, uh, here technology's we are. working. Um, so let's Thanks get... for having me. Thanks. I mean, no, I'm not your first choice, uh, but I am excited to be here. Right. So what's the topic? I have no idea. Backups have fun, too. Uh, so the topic <laughs> is, and you're going to make me play this game where I announce it to you, uh, <laughs> is uh, general special employment. Now, we know that earlier this week, uh, you yourself performed a very riveting uh, webinar Thanks. on employer-employee yeah. relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of experience defending those claims. Uh, sometimes that issue is very black and white, right? Mm -hmm. Like this guy's not on my payroll on the date that he supposedly got hurt, right? And then it becomes a situation where we just produce the records and get out, right? Right. Easy. How, how often would you say that type of employer-employee relationship defense occurs, the easy one, as opposed to the harder ones? Not that often, to be frank with you. I mean, generally speaking, people know who their employer is, right? right. They have a payroll. They have a uniform. Right. Uh, they have a pay stub. They have tax records. I mean, we more... actually probably don't see a lot of those files because it's so easy. Right. Right. They just, you know, uh, pick someone who can just show up to a hearing and present a piece of paper and doesn't really require the nuanced legal arguments that a firm reputable as ourselves would make. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, those are the simple ones. Uh, the ones that we see more typically are ones sometimes where the employer got dragged in Sure. Uh, by the employee who has no idea who they worked for. Maybe they were a day laborer and they're on a construction site. Right. And they got injured in some way and then really don't even know who hired them. They just know the name of one or two people maybe on the site. Uh, and they'll just walk around the site and just sort of point their cell phone at uh, every single <laughs> construction vehicle right. on the site and get all the names. And then they'll just bring a claim against everybody and say, you know, the workers' compensation courts will figure this out, uh, who my right employer was. So they, and, they, they yeah. start up all different ways. Right. And I think uh, the, uh, the road that this leads to is sometimes uh, we get so uh, entrenched in that specific defense that all the litigation leads up to a certain actual point for the the judge or the board mm -hmm. to make and all the while you've lost your defenses because you've you've been so hamstrung on this fact that this guy is not my employee mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um, so that's the first thing I wanted to go over is essentially that when you're raising these defenses right you also want to make sure that there somewhere down the line you might be held to be the proper employer even though you really believe you're not mm -hmm. and it's important to make sure that uh, we're pursuing all other avenues. I think we have a great model here where we 
make our clients aware of the fact that, hey, let's pursue these other ones too as protective sure. measures, right? Yeah, I mean, the entertaining moment is if you only plead as a defense employee-employer relationship, well, you're waiving all those other defenses, right. like notice, right? right? The person is not my employee. How could he possibly give me notice? Right. I mean, what right. you might think is just normal human beings that that's logical. So why would I have to affirmatively plead notice as a defense where I'm claiming this guy is not my employee and never would report an injury to me anyway? Well, the board's going to preclude that defense if you don't affirmatively raise it, e even as nonsensical as that could be or as common sense Absolutely. as that could be. Yeah, and the case is just going to go on by and then, you know, all of a sudden he's building up this exposure, which you haven't defended because you're you're going on a real factual mm -hmm. uh, argument. And mm -hmm. then the legal hits you at the end and mm -hmm. then you can't really defend, you know, the amount of blood that comes out of that stone. Sure. <laughs> right. Right. So um, let's talk about that harder employment case that, that you had just brought up where, you know, uh, someone who doesn't know who their employers or maybe they, you know, they maybe actually know that they are employed or, or at least been given direction by multiple companies, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's where general special comes in. Uh, and it's a term in our, our industry where, uh, for instance, we have clients that contract with other entities to share operations, share locations, mm -hmm. and employees, right? right. So uh, there is an actual question of fact that the board has to go through to determine, uh, is there only one employer or is... Uh, the person a special employee of another entity that may not have been involved in certain facts of his employment, but will be liable, right? Sure. So um, we have a case that came down in the appellate division uh, this past October. Uh, it, it didn't really bring anything new uh, to, to the game here, but it really affirms some of our policies and, and procedures and also uh, sheds light on, on how the, the board can really react to cer certain cases like this, right? So we have a trucking company. Uh, its name is Eaton. Right, and they lease uh, a lot of their uh, vehicles and employees and locations to another company called Quality Carriers. Right, and so Quality takes Eaton's employees and they use them as they see fit to haul goods across the country. Uh, Eaton owns the vehicles. Right, Eaton hired hired this particular claimant. They trained him. Quality Carriers retained the right to discipline them. They gave him the schedules. Right, they provided insurance for Eaton's trucks. And now you have this case where both hands are kind of in the pot, mm -hmm. right? And uh, the quality uh, employ quality carriers appeals a finding of special employment. The, the judge essentially decided it's 50-50. So whatever uh, you know, uh, carrier was indexed, we'll pay the whole of it, and then we'll get reimbursed 50% from the other special employer's carrier. Mm -hmm. How would you go about defending this matter for either one of those uh, trucking companies when it seems like it's very hard to get out of, you know, it's very hard to achieve a full dismissal when you, your hands are a little bit in the pot? Right. Well, when one employer has the right to control, direct, or discharge another alleged employer's employees, <laughs> you're going to lose that almost 100% right. of the time. I mean, right. it, that's really the test. Who has the right to direct and control? And certainly the ability to discharge would impute the ability to control. And I also think that I understand the positions of the employers, right? So I'm taking in all these leased employees or these lent employees or the, however you want to call it, you know, these right. dual employees, and I have them on my premises. Well, I don't want these mavericks doing crazy things. So I might say, hey, uh, I'm going to take your employees because, you know, just from a benefits and payroll perspective, this is a good deal for me. 
but I don't want a crazy lunatic working for me and you know who could tarnish my brand image. Right. So I, I want looking, the right, right. To, to separate this person. Sure. You know? And okay, guess what? Now you've just become their employer. Regardless <laughs> yeah. of the sort of legal arrangements that you've created with this lending employer, uh, you know, you've by doing that, you've now taken them on. Yeah. And what kind of what kind of is funny to me is that you know both employers in this and we've seen this many times where both employers believe it's the other person mm-hmm. that's the employer right mm-hmm. uh, would you ever consider as an employer or maybe you know as an attorney for employer like we are uh, to ever uh, suggest to your client hey let's let's agree with the other employer that we both share responsibility so that we can work together and then mitigate damage from you know, the start of the claim as opposed to fighting it out, whether it's me or you in day mm-hmm. on day 365 and then get hit with all the exposure from one day one. Well, that's what's like a little bit surprising about that decision in particular. Most of the time, most of the relationships that we see with a lending employer and then the other employer who's, you know, maybe taking that employee on and that employee is doing, by the way, the direct work sure. of the borrowing employer. I mean, there's no doubt that this is someone who's doing something integral to their business. Most of the time, they have an agreement or between or, or, them, yes. right? So yes. the, the lending employer will say something like, okay, uh, yeah, you know, we know that we can go to workers' comp court, and workers' comp can look at this arrangement and say, hey, you're both the employers. You're both on the hook. Therefore, I will indemnify you. I will hold you harmless. Should you be found to be an employer and be found to be on the hook for workers' comp benefits, I'll indemnify you. And right. that's typically – how they sort of resolve that. Right, like staffing conflict. companies, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we have a lot of those where they know that they're going to be providing coverage to mm-hmm. uh, their employees. It's truly their employee that they're, you know, giving them temporary status as far as, you know, uh, working for another employer, right? Mm-hmm. It's true. It's, there's, mm-hmm. there's an agreement in place. These cases, you're right, only come about when there is no agreement, right? Right. I mean, that's the odd, the odd man out. The other situation is, or something to be thoughtful about as the lending employer, the employer giving people to somebody else. Uh, hey, by the way, you're going to now be indemnifying maybe or on the hook for a lot of risk that you don't even know what it is. And that's something, you know, like these two parties are going to enter into this sort of arrangement. Uh, and one party ends up sort of insuring or, be, you know, carrying the risk for the other party. And that's something to be mindful about. Um, you know, we also see uh, circumstances, or and particularly in the circumstances that you mentioned, where you're giving the lending or the borrowing employer, sorry, the borrowing employer, the right to discharge your employees. Right, right. I mean, that's pretty extreme. I, you know, uh, there's also case law where things like when the borrowing employer gives them a uniform. Right. Right. With right. the borrowing employer's name on it. And a logo. Well, that, and right. a logo. That's yeah. enough. You know, right. now that they're they're carrying on as if they're in your business. So they're you don't even have to go to the extreme of I can separate your own yeah, you know, I can terminate your employees because they might harm my brand image. Right. You know, there's a You're much already lower threshold. Giving him the brand image actually. Yeah, actually. Yeah. So yeah. you know, there's a much lower threshold and uh, you know, that's why those situations are more the more complicated. Yeah. Right. And and I think too, uh you, it's almost like that old law school um, theory where it's like you're holding that person out so that a reasonable person would look at that guy with the t-shirt on and say you know what that you're an employee of that person like right. how, how is anybody else supposed to know so why should the courts treat you any differently uh, I think what's interesting well, you know law school misses the whole thing too which is this, this, <laughs> law school this, miss something they miss a lot okay <laughs> but here's the other thought you know you're the defense attorney and you're defending one of those two employers you're the borrowing right. or the lending employer okay well their interests are not aligned with sure. either the borrowing or the lending employer but guess what? Those two people, you know, your client and the other person, whether it's the borrower or the lender, 
they have an ongoing business relationship, which might be millions and millions and millions of dollars and millions of dollars in payroll and, and hundreds of employees between the two of them. And so now you're trying to defend a case in which I'm going to try to push the risk. Let's say I'm defending the, right. the lender. Right. I'm going to try to push the risk to the borrower who's right. your huge client. Right. No, that's a problem, right? right? And that's something that you'll never get to in law school, the idea like – because everything's so sterile and it's like in this practic- academic right. environment. But right. the practical aspect yeah. is, I mean, a lot of the times where we have a borrowing and a lent employee, there's the borrower saying like, yeah, I will take the exposure because I right. don't want to screw up. Um, or the lender will say, I'll take the exposure because I don't want to screw up my relationship with this borrower who, by the way, Greg, sends me $500,000 a month in business. You <laughs> yeah. know, that's, you know, that's I right. mean, that's the, why these arrangements are created. Right. I know? think you're, you're more sophisticated employers, right? Like, Bring back to what you said about day laborers, right? It's like the sophisticated employers are either going to have contracts written up to make sure that everybody knows who would be liable, mm-hmm. or they have the uh, relationships with the uh, lent uh, empl- employer or the, the lending employer or the borrowing employer mm-hmm. that they would come to the realization and say, like, you know, I, what's is this worth it to me? ruining this relation by saying 100% of the risk, you take it, it's not me, I only did A, B, and C while you did the rest of the alphabet, right? Right. Um, so you're really only talking about these special cases where it's the, the uh, employers may not have a sophisticated or long-term relationship mm-hmm. and or they don't have the contractual agreement that would push liability and make it crystal clear, right? Sure. So, uh, you know, this general special, you know, a tr- uh, these two trucking companies that maybe not have uh, this type of situation uh, in place, you're going to be kind of litigating that and really severing the relationship. Yeah, it's going to no get ugly. What happens? It's going to get ugly, right? and you know yeah. we have to be sort of prepared for that. So uh, let's 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 put us in that situation then, right? Where we we all, we've made the determination that there is going to be no relationship with the other employer at the end. Um, would you then still consider? Uh, either stipulating to some percentage of liability, or would it make sense to then go full force and go, he's 100% your guy? I mean, you try. I mean, you make the pitch. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I can't, you know, the judge is going to say, well, you did this, you did that. And, you know, the other thought that we would have to explain to the clients is, look, you guys created this relationship between the two companies or the two entities. And there was a point of it. I mean, there was either a tax savings or a benefit savings. Right. or There is some business right. position behind that decision. And, you know, when we're counseling that client or either of those clients, uh, they'll often say things like, Greg, how, you know, how could this guy ever be found to be my employee? Because I have... Uh, we pay the taxes on a 1099, or they'll look to sort of the IRS status of the person or the other entity, and they'll go, look, I mean, we've created these, you know, and I, you know, sometimes we have to counsel them that, well, you know, the workers' comp judge doesn't care whose name's on the pay stuff. No, or what just, he as says long on, as there's someone. Right, as long as there's right. someone, and they're going to look at who directs and controls regardless of who writes the check. And so that's a very different standard or a different thought for them to sort of absorb or, you know, realize that we're really going to look at who was controlling that person, not who paid them or the independent business relationships the two entities had together or, you know, whatever legal artifice that we've created to sort of explain this away (laughs) or to avoid taxes or whatever the point of this relationship is because there is a point to it. uh, But that's not going to carry the day. And and more than that, um, you know, we're going to be almost hamstrung. I don't want to – I don't even want to bring that into court. I don't want your, your contracts. You don't want your contracts to be revealed in workers' comp court. I mean, they might contain 
proprietary business information or business secrets or rates right, or other stuff that you don't become want. discoverable. Right. right, you don't want it out there. Yeah, it's it's a good point. I think that it actually brings uh, you know this 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 niche industry that that we're uh, so much a part of and, and elevates it to you know higher level discussions of how it affects a business because that's what we do here, right? Like you know, the defense of your business is our business, right? So. The, uh, using that to implement and give real-world advice uh, as it relates to just an underlying workers' compensation claim, but really showcases how big, you know, this kind of oh, the issues claim are huge. And, and think about too, the large-scale staffing company or or PEO. Sure. Right. I mean, their number one business expense on their, you know, profit and loss statement is salary. Right. And probably number two is workers' comp. Right. You know, this is a huge proportion of their business that's getting affected by this. And, um, you know, generally those— You could even make the argument that workers' comp even being second is more uh, of a risk because the exposures are variable. Salary is more or less fixed, right? Mm -hmm. You can project salary for a certain amount of years, but workers' compensation exposure just jumps through the roof. Oh, it could be all over the place, particularly if they're self-insured. Right. I mean, in, in which case the reserves are actually hitting the bottom line in those circumstances. So, yeah, certainly. Uh, so those the big uh, staffing companies, the big PEOs, like they're going to be pretty sophisticated. But it's where you get the relationships like the ones you're talking about between a trucking company and a staff leasing company that maybe only has one client. Right. Because right. I don't know too much about the background facts of that case. That's not our case, that right. quality uh, carriers case. But who knows uh, how entwined those two businesses really are? I mean, is it right. did you get to a situation as this over the road trucking company, let's say, where you know workers' comp is a huge proportion of their overall costs, and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do: we're going to spin out all of our employees into this staffing company, which is going to be basically captive to us. It'll just supply people to sure. us, you know. Yeah. And we'll keep the right to fire people, et cetera. So there's going to have this quasi sort of mixed relationship. And maybe they did that because they couldn't get workers' comp coverage in the general market anymore, <laughs> or because they had, you know, right. who knows right. what was the the reasoning sort of behind that? I don't know. Uh, but those are definitely the sorts of things we need to be sensitive to. Yeah, yeah, I th- and I think we we uh, we can certainly see if if one of the employers is willing to bring it all the way up to the appellate division, it's probably not a relationship that uh, is, is safe. Yeah. yeah, it's not yeah. savable. Uh, but it it's a good it's a good reminder of how a case can really just balloon uh, to mm-hmm. to something crazy if we're not careful in the beginning. And uh, some of it is also doing this kind of damage control that we're talking about. It's like, you know, are, can we sever this relationship and really move on with our business practices? It's an important thing to really consider when, you know, John Smith files a workers' compensation claim for a little hand injury, right? Um, and it's, it's really getting into the heart of what we do. So um, it's... It's it's a good it's a good training tool. I think it's a good training tool for how we teach uh, employer employee relationship defenses and how we pursue them in court, uh, because knowing uh, a process is only as good as knowing the reason why the process is in place. Sure, right. Yeah. So uh, that uh, it really covers our real discussion on the issue. I know you went through. Wait, a, what? A, a mo- wait, this is no. I hope it's not coming to no, an end. No, no. Because, hold on, uh, hold on. I have been anticipating this uh, opportunity to speak with you. Right, since I brought this to you this morning, yes. For years, I mean, uh, years, right? Right. Years. Are you, (laughs) I feel like we're only a few minutes into it, and now you're, I I can sense, I can look at your face, I see you wrapping it up, I just never want this No, we're just wrapping up the first 
first segment, right? Okay. I was going to say, since uh, I've had okay. the pleasure of bringing you on for, yeah. for this episode, oh, is there anything new? Is there anything new that we want to tell our listeners about what's going on in our world? In our world? Yeah. Is that, is this, I can't tell if this is a setup. What? Well, this is a setup because uh, if everybody doesn't know, New York State is fully virtual. Oh, okay, all right. Oh, okay, this is the first time since your right. your last podcast was after the state went fully or it was, no, before. It, it, it was before. Yeah, so okay. the last one became virtual after last month's episode. And Greg, what do, what do virtual hearings mean for for our clients? Uh, well, first it means uh, the ease of bringing people to court and defending your case has increased. And that means it's increased or gotten easier for us as defense attorneys uh, to get to all your hearings, to not waste your time waiting in traffic, you know, travel time exposure. Uh, we, you and I have 24 attorneys working with us here. And on any one given day, there's a snowstorm. We have 20 attorneys traveling back and forth to court. I do fear for their safety at times. Yeah, right? I don't want workers' comp claims against us. So uh, from our life, our perspective, uh, life's gotten easier, but from the client's perspective, life's gotten a lot better. Uh, we just completed uh, in March a review for one of our clients who happens to be a large staffing company, and we were able to show that by attending cases virtually, and in their case, we're going to about 90% of their cases virtually, um, that we saved them 26%. That's an amazing cost savings. In, in cost. Yeah. And, you know, we're I, I know that for our clients, we're a bottom line cost. You know, we just... We're just an expense item. We're we're the red, and um, so to me that's very meaningful. But it also means other things. Um, I think about my retail clients, who will literally say to me, "Greg, uh, you know we're super busy. You know a department don't, store client. Right, don't know. take them out of holidays. Don't please don't right. pull my store managers, my captains, you know my my supervisors out in December, January, February because Greg, we're slammed. We're so busy." And I'm like, well, you know, we want to defend these cases, and you might have a good, solid defense, but we can't get somebody to court because they can't spare a day of their floor manager out of the office. Well, guess what? Now they can come to the uh, hearing via WebEx on their cell phone. In fact, the board released an app right. so that witnesses can right. appear on their iPhone or Android device through an app. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened for us and able to marshal witnesses and get them to court. So, you know, I'm very excited about that. And then the final thing is, um, you know, we have, I would say, a pretty big practice. I mean, we are thousands of cases. We are in 31 different courts on any one day. And again, 24 attorneys, multiple jurisdictions. Very complicated. And unfortunately, the downside of that is uh, you get some fragmentation. We have situations in the past where a client has said to us, hey, I, I, I really like Christian. I really want Christian to go to all my cases. Only, only one time? It's happened many times. And I'll say, right. well, listen, Christian cannot be in Buffalo, Albany, Harlem, and Mount Holly, New Jersey, all at the same time. He just can't do it, so I have to spread it out. Well, the good news now is that we've started to have this conversation with clients that we have a lot of files with. Hey, do you want a dedicated team? Do you want dedicated people? Right, so we've done this with you and one of your clients in particular. We yeah. put put all the cases on you and your senior associates, and now that client has this wonderful continuity of both oversight and the attorneys who are handling their cases and the same paralegal on all of their matters. Right, it's a good area of predictability. Sure, and I think that's the biggest. That's going to be a great impact, and particularly for clients that have. I mean, where we live in the market, they have very particular risk. Right, they. There's, there's a reason that they're hiring us. There's a reason they're self-insured in general. Uh, they want someone who understands their program, 
right. what their return to work policies are going to be, uh, how that interacts with their, any of their disability or leave policies, uh, information about the specific risk, the locations, who's going to come testify, what kind of information can they bring. That's a huge advantage that gets squandered when your attorneys are fragmented, when you have an upstate attorney, a mid-state attorney, right. a downstate attorney, a different attorney for Jersey. Ah, it could all be the same person now. And that yeah. is really going to have a big impact. And I know a lot of people promise that to clients, but then, you know, the realities of trying to field a big team and cover a lot of hearings in a lot of places mean they get a fragmented response or they get a fragmented representation. So that I think is going to have a huge impact for clients and, uh, you know, something that I think is really going to impact the case outcome. You know, so that's something we're going to be tracking as well. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I actually couldn't agree more because I think that uh, that's what the system used to be before virtual hearings, right? Where you'd have downstate counsel and you'd have upstate counsel simply due to logistics, travel, mm-hmm. and time. Mm-hmm. And really eliminating those barriers now allows uh, employers and our clients to really make the decision of who is really the best. Mm-hmm. Who is really the best? And, and it's uh, a decision point where you know it's we've seen success come through to our door because clients have made that decision and decided that the best resides here right yeah. and whether it's downstate or upstate virtual hearings now makes that a real possibility you know the board released its annual report on virtual hearings uh, earlier this year and about 50% of every hearing had one virtual participant mm-hmm. that number is going to skyrocket now that every hearing point is Uh, capable with the technology in place yeah and sure and it's mandatory too so yes you can appear in person but it's mandatory to check in online right it's almost like forcing you to do it because it's like i have to if i have to check in virtually then why am i going to be there in court for a settlement approval hearing well i'll tell you this is anecdotal but you know we just had a client meeting in arkansas arkansas where they called in all their counsel across the country and all their comp counsel for a big you know meeting basically national meeting and you know, they said, what's going on in the year? What's new? Okay. And our attorneys, it was our partner, Declan and, uh, and Tim Kane, who said, well, well, uh, what's new in our jurisdiction is, you know, virtual hearings. And they said that every attorney there was asking them questions about how does it work? And because New York is the only one in the country. Right. Now, Florida does allow some virtual hearings in some courts, not all, not all of them. Right. right. Uh, Ohio had a virtual hearing program and then they scrapped it. Uh, years ago, <laughs> right? Okay. That's actually why we thought might this might go away. Work, right? We were worried, but it was. But here's what we know now: out. we are the only ones na- nationwide that have a 100% virtual system. Awesome, totally interesting, and um, you know, we're definitely you know talking about this with attorneys from other jurisdictions. Now, our other big practice, New York's a big part of our practice, but New Jersey's big. Man, can you imagine if New Jersey went virtual? Like, what a great improvement! Now, New Jersey does allow doctors and witnesses to appear virtually. And okay. they've done that for years. But it's really very seldom relied upon. It's not really that uh, often. Uh, New Jersey doesn't really allow out-of-court depositions or discovery. So, you know, a lot of stuff still in New Jersey has been in person and not virtual. But, man, I would love for New Jersey to go virtual, too, because it is just clear to me that the um, the client benefits far outweigh the, you know, the small uh, faults of it, which are things like, hey, uh, you don't get that face-to-face time with your opposing counsel. You yeah, know? no, that's so, true. And that, and that that is different. Um, screaming and yelling is a lot different over <laughs> uh, a WebEx than it is in person, right? right. I, mean, I don't, you want, know I don't want to pound my, my I am desk. a slam my I hand want to pound on the your table desk. and scream kind <laughs> of guy, uh, but sometimes that doesn't, you know, that's, 
on video, that's not that compelling. So. Well, you know what's funny? It's like I, I'm, uh, I've always been a Jersey boy through and through, but every time New York does something well, New Jersey's not going to be far behind once they see New York yeah, doing it. So of, yeah. once they see it, once they see it, I mean, you know, it's still in its beginning stages. Well, let's put it this way. Around. New Jersey in April, no, March, uh, went to finally mandatory electronic filing. Okay. So that means okay. we're only 20 years behind New York. We just had <laughs> mandatory electronic filing in e-case forever. Okay. So, you know, I guess we're like talking about like 2039, 2040. Maybe I'll catch so up to it's gonna It's going to happen. It's going to happen just we'll a little see. slowly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Greg, I know that you want this to happen forever. This one, You want this to last forever. But guess what? We are doing something next month. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if the viewership likes your your voice, oh, yeah. we could bring you back on next month. How would you feel about I'm that? I'm in. I'm in. Yes. I don't even care what the topic <laughs> more, is. More schedules being arranged to, 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 mm-hmm. to put someone out of the office. Somehow right? the whole firm's on PTO. <laughs> <laughs> just like, what, what happened here? I walk in on, you know, on, a, on a May, nice May day. It's like, oh, it's just me and you. Just interviewing. And your choice will be like me or the receptionist. That's, that's <laughs> it. You know, just what are you going to do? All right. Well, um, well it, thanks for having yeah, me. Defend I, from day one. Defend from day one. Thanks for having me. Well, you're the only person to say it more than me yeah. in the first podcast. Maybe yeah. that's your way in, yeah. Yeah. right? Ooh. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been great, Greg, uh, to have you on for the first time Thanks two years. Um, I thank you for all you've done for us here. It's, it's been, been a great honor. journey that's going to continue and get even mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for Greg Lois, this is Christian Cison reminding everybody to defend from day one. <laughs>